I'm Taiko. I'm a monastic here at Zen Mount Monastery, and I'm here with Dr. Eduardo Duran. Ed Duran, who is a Native American clinical psychologist, scholar, teacher, healer, author of Healing the Soul Wound, Counseling with American Indians and Other Native Peoples, Buddha in Red Face, and most recently, Quantum Coyote Dreams the Black World. Welcome, Ed. Well, Thank you and honored to be here with me, the Zen Sangha and the greater Sangha of all the uh, spiritual traditions, really. And also here with Daniel Onren Latore, who's an MRO student. Onren? Hello. Nice to be here. And Ed's good to see you again after our several uh, Sangha gatherings for the wider Sangha and the BIPOC Sangha. So this is really the fourth time you've given your time and energy to our sangha ed and i really appreciate it i feel like your offerings really bring together something of your work with trauma and healing and growth journey of both of those uh paths that has also brought you in contact with buddha dharma practices of all world traditions but meditation and an understanding of the buddha as a teacher and of one of many teachers that you've encountered in your time. So, um, Anurin came up with uh, a few questions, and we gathered some from uh, some of the Vipak Sangha. Uh, Carol Musso helped, and Anurin, and I came up with a couple, and speaking to one of our monastic show on, got a couple questions. So, Anurin, do you want to just jump in and bring some of those themes out? Yeah, I think it's good to just give listeners a recap of the three themes that you summarized looking over all of the questions. The first one is relationship to a lot of core principles or worldviews or mindsets. So those were summarized as verbing versus nouning. So objectifying versus a, a more sort of engaged or active um, relationship to the world. And then our relationship with time, slower or more cyclical time versus linear, uh, competitive time. These could be described in many different ways from different cultural orientations, but we just labeled them in the generically descriptive way. Um, and we can get into maybe the origin of some of those ideas and where they come from. And the second theme is the, about the teacher-student relationship. Um, which is a big recurring aspect of a lot of the stories and core to the learning how to learn that Ed relates in a lot of his work and talks that he's given with us. And then the third theme is ancestry. The reason why that came up is just the clarity in noticing how much disconnection we have with ancestors or Many of us who don't have cultural practices related to connecting with ancestors. So those are the three themes. I think maybe let's start off with time, that first theme about relationship, about language and time. And I think part of where that question came from, Ed, was, you know, in your story, you talked about how your, your teacher was messing with you or it felt like he was messing with you because he was teaching in a way that you were that was very different from what you were exposed to at the university at the time and it took several years before he came out to you and started teaching to you in a linear manner which it's relative right from our western modern perspective that's a very slow arc of years of a sort of indirect teaching and then all of a sudden dropping into a linear what we would consider quote unquote normal western victorian sort of teaching pedagogy so that really stood out in all the different times that we've talked with you. Our struggle to understand is the cyclical sense of time, the seasonal, earthy sense of time that stands out a lot in indigenous wisdom versus the general linear popular sense of time that we have. So how do you see this as part of decolonizing? This relationship to time as it relates to decolonizing, not just the Dharma and spirituality, but just in general, because it's such a core thing. Anthropologically speaking, 
the way any culture relates to time is a very deep aspect of its culture. Yeah, and time is also really tied to the space, to, to the place itself, especially when we start talking about practice, getting enlightened. Then within my understanding of indigenous views on time is that intensity is actually more important than the length of the linear time. And by the way, my teacher, you know, for three years, carrying me along that way, I think he was just expecting more of me and I just wasn't getting it. I just also got not just out of the military. So really, really linear. My left hemisphere was totally in a linear mode. And the only time that he dropped the teaching in a Western manner was two days before he left and he knew he was leaving and he saw that I wasn't getting it. And that's where he gave me that last talk I consider as the Rosanna Stone that helped me put together everything that he'd been talking about for three years. And, and I just wasn't getting the deep understanding that he wanted me to get. And by the way, that Rosetta Stone continues to unfold. And when we speak of time also, I told the story that the first time I was in his presence and I didn't want to be there and I was really anxious, and panic-stricken. Um, you know, Years later, I realized that it was in those first few moments in his presence that he gave me the transmission. And that's why in those first few moments, I basically almost went unconscious. I mean, I almost lost consciousness. And there was no reason for me to do that because nothing really externally had happened. But he had given me the transmissions and it only took a microsecond or whatever and then, of course, to unfold it in my Western linear way, then it took three years plus the last talk. If I would have been, I think, where I'm at today, I would hope that I wouldn't pass out, that maybe I would actually see it as a transmission right away and then maybe be able to, to move with it faster. Again, here we go. You know, we use those terms as far as time when... In spirit time, as I have also mentioned it previously, uh, time doesn't move just linearly in one direction. It moves also backwards towards the ancestors. And so time has a real peculiar collapsing in of itself. And I, I really believe that in deep states of meditation that one can acquire, one can actually uh, get a sense of, of what that's about, that there's, the time basically collapses and therefore awakening can happen in a nanosecond. And, and I think that a lot of times, and especially Western Buddhism, and I've been around Western Buddhism for a lot of years, and, and there's a notion that if you sit long enough, and a lot of times students are given the notion that, well, you need to sit for a long time. And once we say that, then it predisposes a student to where, I guess I'm not ever going to get this in this lifetime because I'm not going to live as long as they're telling me this is going to take. But in reality, the holy ones of the six directions might have a different plan for this particular student. And so that's why I think that getting out of the way of the time issue is really valuable because intensity and that intention, I think, uh, collapses, you know, basically the space-time continuum, and, and therefore awakening can happen at any time. Otherwise, we're in deep trouble if we have to wait for people to get enlightened for another 20 years. We need to enlighten people right now as the state of the world. Otherwise, we're not going to be here. And so I really believe that we need to uh, believe the pro process can unfold very quickly. And like I said, the transmission, although I was totally, that's why I identify with the dullard, because I wasn't even as good as a dullard when I first encountered my teacher. I didn't even want to be in his presence. And I didn't want any, anything to do with him. And it was all pretty accidental and synchronistic that I even was in his presence and it ended up spending the time that I did with him. But like you were saying, so interesting that that first meeting, and when you reflect back on it, it's like everything was there. Everything was there. You know, your resistance and sort of your, your ability to be selfless also to cross that divide and to take in 
even what your logical mind wasn't really letting you at the time. And then to just let it kind of seep in over linear time or the seasons. Um, I think that that's very true about sitting down for Zazen. Also, you know, you sit down, you think you don't know what the hell you're doing. And actually, it's all right there yeah. from the very beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where he gave me what, I guess, in your jargon, the first Zen koan, the speaking of time took me like over 35 years to even get a glimmer of that when he asked me, have you ever seen the colors? And I have no idea what he's talking about. And when he asked me, do I, you want me to show them to you? And all I could say is, no, sir, I don't want you to show me anything. And I bolted out of the room. And in retrospect, I should have hung out because he might have shown them to me right there instead of having to wait 35 years to get a glimmer of what that question was about. It's hard to let down those natural defenses, I guess, but, yeah. you know, to really just realize their, I don't know, our unity, our capacity, even. Yeah, and, and of course, ego um, being what it is and wanting to be in a way, and of course, that transmission shattered ego. I mean, my cosmic egg was really cracked to where I, I had to run out of the little hut real quickly to compose myself because I was just having a really hard time. One of the reminders that I think we hear a lot in our Zen practice is, rather, I, I hear this a lot, let go of time, to let go of the outcome, like you mentioned, but specifically often the sitting period of time or the weekend retreat period of time or the you know month-long residency or whatever you have you, right? Or a lifetime, right? And so this letting go of time and an attachment that there's this linear expectation of an outcome is what I think we hear is the same teaching in part of the stories that you've heard. The other thing that we hear is in the language. Oftentimes you've shared some of your native language and we hear this from a lot of different indigenous teachers, both I think in South and North America, from my experience. One of the commonalities is that the language often is more descriptive, right? So what is that place? It is where the swallows sing at night. There's a ecological or contextual um, experience, experiential or phenomenological description. I kind of want to push back on that from what I hear from a lot of non-native folks is there's a sort of romanticism at times I hear in this, the recognition of that. Because it can just be easily another object, another thing that, oh, well, if we just start speaking in this magical way, then our problems will be solved. But at the same time, there really seems to be something very important about that. Given the way that English is and the way that we speak, how do we tap into that more alive or intimate sense where it seems to us, those outside of that language, our language is a barrier? I guess the question to you is, is the barrier really our language? Well, I think it's one of, one of the barriers. And my understanding of it is that English, because of the nouning and objectifying of the world, really stands in the way, especially in the, in the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma, which was on emptiness. It's really hard to get to emptiness if things have solidity. And language predisposes how we perceive the world. And I really believe that if we could find a way around it, it might facilitate seeing things as they are. And of course, I don't speak the Buddha's language, but I suspect that he knew this because in some of his teachings, he would speak to the students in manners of where they were at cognitively, but also language-wise, what they could understand. And if we could verb the world, even, you know, if it's in practice, even if it's sitting for the five minutes on the cushion and verbing instead of nouning, I think that would go a long ways. And recently I had a direct experience of that where there's one teacher who I'm friends with, and she was going to be doing a retreat in Tibetan tradition. And one of the things that was really getting in the way is how she was going to speak about the elements, air, fire, earth, water, and space. And my response to her was, well, as long as we say it like that, then the elements are solid. And as soon as the elements are solid, now you're in separation from all that is. And so 
just a real simple, you know, uh, intervention really made a big difference. Where I said, when you say earth, instead of saying just earth, say earthing happening. Firing is happening. Uttering is happening. Spacing is happening. So all of a sudden, there's a dynamic flow to the elements themselves. And if they're energetically in flow, that means that the elements can interact, which is really what they do in creating this body and creating the universe itself. But as long as they're separate and solid objects, they're just clanking against each other. And it's really hard to get through to that. And I thought it was a fairly simple explanation, but she was really grateful. She says, well, uh, that's it. And, and then I said, if you throw in the clockwise and counterclockwise, you know, time moving backwards and forwards at the same time, then those elements are so fluid that they can create the whole universe, which is really what the universe is about. And of course, in the Buddha's middle discourses, I mean, the first four words and then the period is air, fire, earth, water. And then there's a thousand pages um, talk about those elements and that the Buddha's probably pulling his hair out. You know, how do I simplify this? And so I really think that we do have an avenue to do that and we can change our psychology if we actually work at it. And then slowly or maybe fast, we can make the leap into that quantum world because that's basically what we're talking about. And this is where, again, Black Elk saw the vision at eight years old, right? When he saw everything and basically became awakened. And he said, and I stood and I saw where everything was still and in movement at the same time. Then he follows, I says, but I was seeing in a sacred manner. That's code for, I was seeing in an awakened state. And so he really differentiates that. And to me, that's a huge statement from this eight-year-old who was shown the mysteries of quantum and everything else at eight years old. And it was like that. And again, the issue of time, he wasn't 80 when he saw this. He was only eight. So sometimes it doesn't take as long as some teachers think it should take. And so yeah, I bring that up also in connection with the time issue. Speaking of the elements that way too, I feel like if I can connect with sort of the water element it's in my body and the fire is heat, my body, that, that it really, it, it breaks down a wall immediately. You know, the air is, is, is that all those elements are actually this, this body that I am moving through space and time. Yeah, absolutely. In the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as we're moving through the bardos, these are the things that are dissolving. Well, if they're mm -hmm. solid, they can't do that. So mm -hmm. apparently there's a shape-shifting happening as the dissolution of the body. In the Tibetan Book of the Dead has a data by day, line by line description how this stuff happens. And it's amazing. It's amazing. amazing. Yeah. So I, um, I want to take up uh, the teacher-student relationship. And I was reflecting on our conversations, too, in a kind of back and forth. And it seems like this theme of decolonizing that each of us need to do calls us to really radically consider all our relationships, like with self and ancestry, language, community. And this is so intimately tied up with this embodied self, you know, that I am now and that we each are. So given these embodiments and our exploration of spiritual practice, I'm wondering, and this was a question from Carol too, how are we stepping into authentic dialogue, say, in the teacher-student relationship where two people might have had historic intergenerational karmic conflicts, say a white embodied teacher, perhaps male, and a student that may be Black or Indigenous or Asian American, person of color, how do we have an authentic relationship with each other, given those embodiments. Well, I have, you know, clinical psychology to fall back on because there's that thing called transference, but it's not just the transference in consciousness, what we see here, but it's also unconscious transference. And the unconscious events are psychological events also as much as the conscious events. So with the recent science on epigenetics, 
where epigenetics basically informs the way we interact with the environment, all of that lineage is, it comes into the present moment between teacher, student. And over the years in supervising clinical psychology students, you know, that was a huge hurdle once they got through it. And for instance, there was this person, blonde, blue-eyed, and of course, native patient. And then they would come to me in supervision and say, nothing is happening. You know, they won't tell me what's going on. And so I asked a simple question. I said, well, who do you think they see when they see into those blue eyes and that blonde hair? Historically, what triggers for that person? And so the assignment to the students to go back into her lineage and find out what happened with her ancestry in regards to not just natives, but power, privilege, all of that. And so she did a pretty systematic and honest review of that. And then without her telling the patient she was doing this, once she did that, the patient opened up completely and told her everything he needed to know to heal himself. And the reason I think this is important in the sound guy is that over the years, I have talked to students who were really psychologically beat up by teachers when they would bring up issues of wanting to see what this was about. And basically the response is you need to sit more. Again, here we have the time issue. If you sit for X amount of time, then you'll get over this whole thing. Well, the ancestors of both sides are sitting there. No, we're not. We need an honest healing of this. And it's a healing that needs to happen. And of course, the Buddha is the ultimate doctor, right? That's the whole gig is about healing us from ignorance and samsara and all of that. Well, how can we proceed with the, you know, teaching the student when the epigenetics is, is getting in the way and the binding emotions, to use the Buddha's words, are also getting away. And that's why I call it the elephant on the cushion. And then, you know, I've had some of my friends who are ardent meditators for a long time to where they have been told some pretty hurtful, just downright racist comments to them. And these comments were made to them when I found out it was by somebody who'd been meditating for like 25 plus years. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, so what have they been doing on the cushion? That's right. It's a question, right? I have to deeply trust, uh, at least in my own healing work with my own ancestry, to trust that healing presence goes back in time as well as forward in time and as well as in relationship with others. I really have to trust that that work is going to impact your ability to serve and be present for all people. Well, yeah, going back to the time compression, how much faster, let's say, there's a, a teacher from somewhere in the United States who, whose lineage may be slave owners, okay, radical. And then let's say there's a African-American student whose ancestors were slaves. And how quickly would that time elapse happen if the teacher were to have dealt with that and healed it and to be able to say it, you know, this is who I am. And when you talk about authenticity, I think that that would really accelerate the enlightenment of both the teacher and the student. Definitely, definitely. Because then now we're, the binding emotions are gone and now we can just really go towards nirvana without that holding us back. Sounds easy, but I guess it's really difficult. And the history of Buddhism in this country was imported from Asia by mostly white teachers who had the means and the privilege and all of that. And so a lot of the teachings also have been filtered through their Western lens. And so a lot of times what the student hears, like if it's, let's say, a Native American student, it's not going to make a lot of sense any more than a psychologist diagnosing a Native patient with major depressive disorder, which is one of the diagnostic categories in the book. No, it has to be verbed in a way that makes sense. Maybe the spirit of the sadness is visiting you. Maybe the spirit of samsara is visiting you. It's in movement. So if samsara is in movement like any other energy, well, guess what? That means it can shapeshift and it can turn into something else. 
they could turn into nirvana. And so uh, the metaphors that we use, I think that that could be really important. And again, I'm into wanting to get people enlightened because we really need that. We do. And we have to recognize that past, present, and future are not separate. There really is no difference. So the work that we do now is about our past, our ancestral embodiment. That's work I've been doing as a white embodied person grandchild of immigrants from Eastern Europe became white in this country as a refuge and lost a connection um, that was very, very minor that I've been trying to like open up. And I feel the healing of that um, of just beginning, really. I think there, there has to be a real trust that that is important work to do because there's not a whole lot of support in our culture even our Buddhist culture, to say, well, I don't know my ancestors. I don't know anything about them. But that doesn't even matter. Taking it on as, as personal work seems to be the most important part, you know, just asking. Yeah, it, most Buddhist teachers are really smart people, just cognitively speaking. It'd be very easy for them to find out who they are. It's a real critical thing because, you know, like I would tell interns, I said, if you don't know who you are and the patient doesn't know who they are, well, then it's going to be Two of you moving out into the nether worlds and both of you will get lost in the universe somewhere, never to be seen again. So it's important that we have that axis mundi, the center of the world, at least for a few minutes during the interaction to where we have that, where, who we are. And I really think that the, the Dharma would really flourish even more if that were to happen. So it's, again, it's the medicine that the Buddha gave us by turning the wheel of the Dharma. I mean, I call it the medicine wheel. And, you know, a lot of people feel that it is that. So let's talk about ancestors now more directly, part of the elephant in the room that's in the teacher-student relationship, and about the past as prologue and future as the past of this blending. I feel like our conversation has now entered into a much more non-linear expansive and inclusive presence with all of the ancestors between us. So one of the things that just actually came to mind is in the open veins of Latin America, right? So this is a very famous text about the history of colonialism in Latin America and all the extraction that's been going on since its quote-unquote uh, discovery. And the preface quote in the book is this. We have maintained a silence closely resembling stupidity. And that is a line from the revolutionary proclamation of the Junta uh, Tuitiva in La Paz, Bolivia, on July 16, 1809. But that line, you know, and this book was written in 1971. This book is as old as I am. But that still seems so relevant today in light of what we see with Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and the Land Back movement, there's so much silence. I think so many of us, myself included, at times have felt so overwhelmed or not safe or not invited into spaces and conversations. And so I've remained silent for fear of reprisal or not knowing how to skillfully say something because I have too much anger um, or confusion or shame about my disconnection, about my own internalized oppression. And then at the same time in Zen, it's all about silence, right? So silence is a very complex thing, the just sitting and the just noticing. There's a skillfulness about silence, right? It can be many things. It can be, well, it can be stillness. Yeah, stillness. Yeah, it can be a space of deep wisdom and openness, but it can also be a very stifling thing. So in the ancestor topic, working with that, the earth is a teacher, right? It's not just formal teachers that we have, but teachers are everywhere. There was a bunch of questions that folks had that were just wanting a lot more about that. So, for example, here we talk about how does this relate to being genuine, right? You just were talking about this, about fully knowing ourselves. And there is a bit of a difference in the power dynamic oh, yeah. of the white identified or identifying within white versus those of us that are outside of that. So it's an incredibly complex feeling. And silence is needed, and silence is also not needed. 
in the last talk you gave, one of the questions that folks had was, how do I talk to my ancestors? Right? How do I begin a dialogue? So I just want to spend some time going deeper in this. Well, in Zen, uh, I mean, you all do chanting and meditation to the Zen ancestors, right? To the, to the lineage of, uh, that goes way back into China and, and how it came into Japan. And so you have that practice already, except those might not be your ancestors. I mean, they're not part of your epigenetic. Those are, you know, spiritual ancestors and it's all good. So I think that it's really important to try to, to connect. And the best way to do that is through the earth because we are the earth and our ancestors are the earth. And this is where now it involves ceremonial practice and Zen has all kinds of ceremonies that are done. And by the way, most of the Buddhist practices are also rooted in uh, ancient shamanic religions. You know, Zen and, and Shinto, you know, almost side by side. And then, of course, Shinto is called animism because everything is alive in, in, in that tradition. But when we talk about the ancestors who who are just barely converse to Buddhism from Shinto, well, the Shinto is still deeply a part of them. And when we hear the teachings like in Mountains and Rivers and how they talk about that, very connected to the earth, the Buddha himself being a tribal person, very connected to the earth. And over the years, I mean, as some people have approached me in their therapy as to wanting to know who they are. And this is where dreams are really important. And this is where having an altar that you can leave offerings to the ancestors and ask them to reveal themselves to you. And it's a practice that it's very useful. And one particular medicine man that I used to work with in therapy, he used to have his altar there. And, and it was in an urban area. And the people would say, I don't know who I am because I was adopted and whatever colonization happened. And he would just listen to them and then he would point to the altar and he would say, well, this one here has never forgotten who you are. And it's always saying, welcome back, my great, great, great granddaughter. Welcome home, my great, great, great grandson. And so it's that, again, ceremony transcends ego. And so I think by doing simple ceremony, and like I say already, Zen has a lot of that where you do homage to the Zen ancestors. Well, maybe you can throw in a few of your own in there, just in your lineage as to homage to them also, because they also need to be heard. And, and I mean, what if there's an enlightened ancestor in your epigenetics? I mean, you don't want to miss that one, right? Because that'll inform you as to how to get awakened in this lifetime. And so I think this is where Carl Jung, you know, the great psychiatrist says, we really need to connect with our lineage. And a really good example of that is when Jung was here in the United States and he was going to go visit tribal people, native people. And that morning he put on a tuxedo. Of course, the Jungians are like, Dr. Jung, what are you doing? You sh shouldn't you dress like a little more Indian-y or feathers? And he says, no. He says, in my world, when I go visit the king or the queen of a country, this is what I wear. And the connection was immediate. Here is a, a community that's known for not saying a whole lot. They had an immediate connection and they were able to talk about important things. Again, the authenticity just really, really pulled. You know, the stories about Mountain Lake, it's in the collected works. Mountain Lake being one of the holy people of the community. Uh, he he wasn't used to ever talking to anybody except some from his community. But here comes Jung in a tuxedo, and there's an immediate knowing because he knew who he was, and he wasn't pretending to be anything else. And so I think that's a great example of authenticity. Yeah, it's great. A very wise friend, when I was trying to connect with my parents after they passed, said, well, you know, their language, you know, um, there's your ancestors' spiritual language. Maybe you need to speak to them in their language. And I was like, Hebrew? But I don't, you know, and I was like, okay, let me just try this. And I feel like I have those two streams on my ancestry altar. There's my 
epigenetic stream. I work with in a particular way. There's my Buddhist stream. I work with in a particular way, you know, these ancestors. There's and there's earth in both streams. Um, but that, you know, knowing that's really important. Knowing who you are in relationship, who my ancestors see me as it's important. Yeah, then you're at the axis mundi, you're at the center of the world, the center of the universe, because there's only one center, and it's the center of our heart. So when we're at the center of our heart, then we're there. So cycling back on this ancestors and the teacher-student relationship, in your book, The Quantum Coyote Dreams, The Black World, you talk about plant medicine. And of course, here in 2023, in the recent present age, there's a resurgence of people seeking connection with ancestors through very strong plant medicine. And you write in the book that sometimes these people journeying on this path uh, become addicted to the journey of traveling, which only adds to the delusion of separateness, which I want to unpack for folks just because I've noticed this myself with people in my life where it's almost like it replaces spiritual practice and it's like they're looking for the shortcut or they think what's spiritually authentic is only what is a peak experience and everything else that's simple or, or small is not significant. It also brings up this question of the importance of a teacher and a guide versus perhaps a very American individualistic libertarian sort of attitude that's like, I don't need anyone. I am my own master. I am my own God, you know, and you hear this in a lot of the new age thinking and in spirituality that is very present. So this is a very potent topic. It's very alive in our society right now, which at the core of it, I think there's this good thing because there's a seeking, there's a feeling of, I want to reconnect, but it gets twisted very quickly. Can you tell folks more about what you mean by getting addicted to the journey of traveling, which isn't the same as it's not the destination, right? It's not the outcome, it's the journey, like in Journey to Ishlan. You know, yeah. you're saying something, you're adding like an advanced point here about that because it's not so simple. No, it's not. And I think Jack Kerouac, who invented kind of the 50s and 60s, when he was asked after he did his first acid trip, well, what did you think? And he says, uh, enlightenment wasn't built in a day. And so he kind of had to, the notion that, well, wait a minute, this is a peak experience. And any more than in, in sitting, if you're in that absorption, once then you stop sitting, the absorption goes away. And my understanding, again, this is from the teachings that over the years of what my teacher told me, is that there's a specific spin, and this is talking subatomic levels and that sort of thing, and where we go into discord, whether through trauma or whatever happened to us. So then there's that need through symptoms, anxiety, depression, and so on. But these plants, these sacred plants, are still in direct contact with the original primordial instructions, the primordial instructions as to how the universe works. But using myself as an example, when I first met Terrence, he threw that knowledge at me or that transmission it wasn't with drugs or anything and i was blacked out so if the person hasn't done their homework through contemplation meditation learning then yeah the, the medicine plant will take them to a place but then they can't integrate it because the plant is too advanced and you know it's like teaching uh, emptiness to first day Zen person who's never even heard of meditation. Well, they're going to walk away like, what was that? But then the ego experience and the, and the neatness of the colors or whatever it is that they saw keeps them wanting to come for more. And then that's when it becomes addiction. I mean, right now, some of these medicines are on the last phase of clinical trials for uh, medicine, psychology, psychiatry to use them to treat patients. But my concern there is, again, the relationship to the plant has to be there. And this is where the individual shaman or practitioner healer is initiated into that plant. And, and then they know how to 
take it. They know how to prepare it. And when it's prepared in mass and it's bought over the counter or on the street, well, like I told people who were addicted to marijuana, cocaine, whatever, over a hundred thousand native people in Mexico had died over violence on that plant. So the spirit of violence is deeply ingrained in that plant. So when you take that plant and you take it and you put it in your body, well, you're also taking the spirit of violence and the spirit of death and the spirit of all of that. And like the Buddha said in karma, it can be no other way. If you take in the spirit of violence, guess what? It's going to do violence to your body. You know, if you take the spirit of greed, which is, well, then you're going to go into the hungry ghost realms. And so this is pretty much cut and dry karmically. If we follow the teachings of how the Buddha outlined this, it can be no other way. This is, again, I could almost hear him saying, guys, this is not rocket science, okay? You know, this is pretty simple. This is what's going to happen to you if you do this in a way that goes against the original way. And then, of course, in Zen, the face before you were born. And of course, the medicine could give you a glimpse of that. And so all of a sudden, you know, the Buddhist practitioner is like, whoa, I saw a thousand Buddhas. Well, you probably did, but you still don't know what to do with a thousand Buddhas because it takes as a Buddhist says, proper effort. And again, it's effort, not time, you know? So it, if you put the proper effort, then you'd be able to integrate that. And how cool would that be? Let's say somebody who's really practiced. And of course, Ram Das gave us the ultimate example of that when he met his teacher, I think in India, and he had all this LSD. And the teacher said, well, give it to me. And so he took all of it and nothing happened. And Ram Das is like, whoa, there's a whole other level to this. And so then he understood that it wasn't just about taking LSD because the teacher was already way beyond it. So the LSD didn't have anything to tell him. And so he took all he had and he thought, my gosh, he's going to blow himself up. And the teacher was nothing, you know, he says, well, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it goes to both sides, you know, a student who hasn't done any of this other work, taking ayahuasca, powerful grandmother medicine. Yeah, it'll take you places. Uh, but then how do you integrate that unless you have a teacher? And I've actually today been very involved because I'm sitting on a dissertation committee mm-hmm. where the person is examining ayahuasca. And of course, the colonization that has happened to it in the disrespect to indigenous people and indigenous teachings and just taking that medicine and harvesting it with greed because it's about money. So once the intention of greed goes into that medicine, then violence because it's harvested with violence and that in accordance to how these people who are initiated into it, they go about in a very different way of harvesting. They have a dream where they know a certain plant, even though there might be thousands of plants, only take that one and you prepare it in a certain way. And if you don't prepare it in a certain way, then it's, it's not going to work out. And uh, another example I have is when I was visiting South Africa years ago, I was fortunate enough to be taken to the home of a Sangoma native healer. And he's taking us through his garden. And there's about seven or eight women in full regalia following close behind. And he would stop at a certain plant. He'd say, this plant is used for such and such. But unless one of those women over there has a dream that tells me how to use it, it won't work. Mm. And sure enough, because they did clinical trials through harvesting and mass, it didn't work. Clinical trials, when I was prepared that way, then the medicine actually worked. And so there's a lot to it. And, and uh, like I said, Causes and conditions. Yeah. There's the yeah. causes and there's the conditions and they yeah. act. Yeah. And it's all dependently originating. And if, and if that dependent origination doesn't happen in a prescribed manner, then people get hurt. And I'm really concerned if this becomes part of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I don't know. I, I, I pray that, uh, the medicine becomes merciful and realizes that human beings are just pitiful and we just don't know what we're doing. Yeah. 
I mean, and this brings us back to where we began talking about relationship, right? right? And how language creates separation, which then leads to the actions of separation. And this is, I think, why this question came up from practitioners in our BIPOC community, because I think a lot of us see this happening because of the popularity. And there is a lot of good work happening in the formal psychiatric and research psychology fields. But there's even been criticism of groups like MAPS, which have been leading at the forefront of this work. But then now there's, I think, thanks mostly to BIPOC groups, there's been a lot of legitimate criticism over capitalist sort of extraction, let alone continuing colonialist cultural extraction that is actually going against the relationship that we need. Yeah. And greed, which is one of the three roots, right? So that's a third of the gig. So if greed is thrown into the mix of these medicines, then again, it, it catapults us into the hungry ghost realm because we can ever get enough. And again, you know, that's a simple teaching of the Buddha. There's only three things you guys got to uproot here, right? Simple, but not easy. And greed is a biggie. And so if greed goes into that, already the American psyche is greed-oriented. It's just going to have greed squared it's just going to make it even worse. And so I have concerns about that. And right. you know, I wish that the uh, spiritual traditions uh, of the country, whether Christian or whatever, would speak to these things because I think all spiritual leaders like Christ or whoever, they knew this stuff and they talked about it, except that, I don't know, it goes by the wayside to most of these spiritual leaders of our country. Does remind me of the work of Green Faith, which is one of those organizations that's an international one that is really working to undo that relationship between greed and extraction and meeting our energy needs, you know, and they're just taking activist steps. They really draw on Christian and Muslim and Buddhist communities to take action against big corporations that are pursuing extraction, that are putting greed above profits above impacts on the planet and people. Mm, and, yeah. you know, I want to segue there maybe to Anran's question about wise leadership. What is the wise leadership that we need in these times of vast sweeping change? The climate crisis, technology, urbanization. The wise leadership is, is very simple. I just look at the three roots or even one. I mean, if each major religion looked at just one, on, and uprooted it and taught people how to do that, then I think that we'd be on a way to heaven and an enlightened society. And we probably are headed in that direction. The prophecies of Crazy Horse and Black Elk lead me to believe that somehow we're going to get this. But the wise leadership, and again, Crazy Horse said it, he said that in seven generations, all the colors would be under the sacred tree. And then people would be coming to those knowledge keepers like the indigenous traditions to help up and he didn't use his words uproot you know these three things that need to be dealt with because he talked about greed and his vision and how he said it's also lies and delusion in a very sick world but then he gave hope that at the seventh generation which is pretty much now or very soon all of the colors will be under the sacred tree and Black Elk said that the sacred tree that had withered and died will bloom and come to life again. So that to me is like, how do you beat that? I mean, well, the, the sacred tree will bear fruit again. And then, of course, the Buddha in the land of the red face, Padmasambhava's vision, where the Buddha will be here, meaning awakening and not necessarily the historical, because again, Buddha, I guess, would be a better way of saying will be happening in the land, which is happening because there you guys are Buddhaing in, in your lives, wherever you, you walk, the spirit of Buddha. And, and Thich Nhat Hanh, I mean, said something recently that really threw me. He says, when you're in that concentration sitting, or even if you're just choiceless awareness, he says, that's the Buddha. It's not a person. It's not an object. It's this energy. And he calls it an energy of concentration and samadhi, that's the Buddha. And I thought, man, he gets it. Of course, tribal person from Vietnam, who, you know, really understood that. Yeah, I think Dogen called it Buddha activity. 
Yeah. So that was a really nice way to you know, turn it. Yeah. I mean, what I hear in that answer, you took it right away into a place of inspiration or hope, which I think I certainly struggle with at times. And I'm realizing as I'm stepping more into trying to embody wiser leadership that I need to have that myself in order to be there for others, to offer that uh, authentic, to be authentically hopeful and offer inspiration to myself, which it's all to, connected to everything. Thank you for that. I'm glad you went straight there into that. And then the embodiment, that drum is beat very well in our Zen order that it's sitting. The practice is the practice and it's all about practicing. So that is fairly clear, but it's also remembering that bigger, brighter view without letting all of the encounter with reality. Facing what's real means encountering all the shadow and all the darkness, but that doesn't mean it should obscure the, the sun, the kind of like lights and creates life. Yeah, so Shikantaza and then practicing Aikido over the years, uh, one of the things that I became aware of is that at any moment in a given technique where you're being thrown or you're thrown someone in that microsecond, you could be a 10th Don, even if you're a beginner. Because in that moment, you're really present. So when you sit, it could even be as you're getting ready to sit, not even formally sitting there with your, you know, position in that moment, it's already happened there. And sometimes we miss it. Mm -hmm. We're very present in arranging stuff, but we're not sitting yet. So I guess we can't do that. And that's why I like, I think it's the Tibetans that talk about the choiceless awareness where to move through the world with that, you know, and if you catch it, I mean, oh, now walking, I'm walking, eating, I'm eating. And in native ceremony, I always try to stress to the people in dances, like sun dancing, you know, you're sun dancing. Well, that's the whole gig right there. You know, it's in that moment. If you know that now you're, you're a Buddha. And of course, then you could stay there, but the ego might come up and say something. And then, you know, my chances are it will. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, that's just the part of the, uh, shape-shifting that happens back and forth. So I see that as Hmm. just an integral part of the practice and to honor it, to really honor it because it's happening all the time. Hmm. What last thing before we wrap up here uh, is just this morning, I was hearing another practitioner in a leadership session talking about how the way we evolved with our limbic system. He was talking about the brain and these sort of core base emotions there are no enemies or bad things that we need to banish it's just our relationship with ourselves in an intimate manner and so yes fear is part of nature and it's a matter of how do we work with that but then he flipped it into fearlessness is also part of nature and that to me is i think another edge that i have of this sort of wrathful compassion the sort of warrior energy and tapping into that fearlessness while still being supple and open, which I think it's that hope at the heart of it is where I'm circling back. What kind of closing words would you have about fearlessness in relation to these topics today? Well, I think in, uh, I've been in, in indigenous ways is to make a relative out of everything, including the fear. And of course, we have the story of the Buddha, and I think it was Ananda who was watching the gate and didn't want the Buddha to be disturbed, but you know, I forget which demon shows up. And so Ananda's like, oh man, I, the Buddha's meditating, I can't buy. So he goes and tells the Buddha, you know, a certain demon is here. The Buddha says, well, have him come in. Come on, man. And make, make some tea, you know? And again, it's a making a relative and that's the fearlessness. Then we have Milarepa, right? Sitting there in the cave and these demons come and you scare the heck out of him. Over and over till one day he's just so tired of it. He jumps in the mouth of the demon. And of course, then the demon is like the dog that catches the car. It's like, I don't know what to do with this guy. I think, you know, it was more fun scaring him. But once he became fearless and 
You know, and this is one of the things also that in a Western way of looking at it psychologically is the teaching is we need to get rid of stuff. You need to get rid of the addiction, you need to get rid of the cancer, you need to get rid of the diabetes, get rid of the depression. Within indigenous ways, unthinkable to get rid of anything. And for the simple reason is that the natural law says you can't do that because you can't create energy or destroy energy or matter. So the thing becomes into make a relative so they can shapeshift the demon. Of course, Padmasambhava is a classic example where instead of getting rid of all the demons in Tibet, he converted them and gave them the teachings and then they helped him enlighten all the Tibetans who were real crazy at the time. And there's a particular ceremonial form that addresses this and it's called killing of the enemy. And so if there's an enemy, let's say it's a bad mind state or whatever. So ceremony is done, but in killing of the enemy, and killing then is, is a death rebirth motif. In killing of the enemy, we resurrect and make, and make a brother or sister out of that person. And so then it becomes a relative that can help us. So I think that's really important to not allow ourselves to start fighting against anything. Because once we start fighting with whatever, it energizes it. And Newton's, I think, first law of motion for every action, opposite and equal reaction. So if we push on the demon, guess what? The demon's going to have a great time pushing back. Instead, do a killing of the enemy ceremony, killing of the enemy part, but shape-shifting it into making that demon a brother and a sister. And how cool would that be if these powerful demons become our friends? Then we're on a quick trip to awakening because like the Buddha says, have them come in. And I really like this story because that's very similar to native beliefs of, oh yeah, let them come in and let's talk about this. Let's have some food. And once you have food and drink, now it's no longer an enemy. I think that's where the fearlessness, but it takes fearlessness to go there. And of course, in the Tibetan tradition, they have the Tonglin practice and the mm-hmm. Chul practice, which are really scary places to go. I would never ask a beginner to even think of those things because you're basically asking these beings. And Christ himself said it, you know, it's interesting, I think in Mark or somewhere, when I read this later in my life, I couldn't believe he said this, do not resist evil. And those are the exact words. And I was like, whoa. Talk about an Aikido master. That's exactly what, and I, I just had to sit there with it. I said, I can't believe I've never seen this before. Do not resist evil. So basically he's talking what indigenous people say is you make a relative out of everything. Hmm. And so I, again, that gives me great hope if we can do that. Because Padmasambhava within one lifetime, and of course Milarepa within one lifetime after being a really bad guy. I mean, this guy killed a bunch of people throwing medicine at them and stuff. Within one lifetime, he became completely awakened. So that compresses the whole time thing. I mean, a really bad guy gets enlightened. Um, so why not me, huh? Mm-hmm. I feel really strongly about that because especially in psychotherapy, patients want to get rid of their stuff. And I would always say, oh my gosh, you know, and I forget which philosopher said, so be careful in getting rid of your demons. You don't get rid of the best part of yourself. I think it was Frederick Nietzsche that said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. There's so much energy and transformation. Right? Yeah, the dragon, right? Like in the Chinese tradition, it's unthinkable. Of course, in the Christian tradition, I mean, St. George you know, kills the dragon. It's like, man, you just destroyed the whole energy. You know, now what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, especially in this time right now, we could have a whole other podcast session with you just about technology as another sort of powerful drug. (laughs) And right. Yeah. You know, and what technology today is doing is it's making us all encounter each other at light speed. And so we're noticing our differences or it amplifies our differences at times, depending on how we're approaching it, depending on our relationship, depending on the relationship of those who make the software and what types of relationships they foster or engender in that software. But within all of that, samsara, digital samsara, there's this opportunity of just flipping that around into this making a relative 
And I think that's a big seed that you just planted there for myself and I'm sure others is how might we use technology to foster or support making a relative of the phenomena and of all things in this world. That would certainly take us in a very different direction with the way that we could more skillfully use technology. And we're doing that right now. Yeah, we are. We are. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ed. It's always a very profound experience to have time with you. And I can say that from my sense of a lot of the folks in our order who have attended the events, everyone is very conscious of the time that we have with you. And that's why we ask for more. Right, Taikyo? That's well, right. I'm honored and humbled at the same time because I don't consider myself to be anything. But thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to say these words, you know, put them into the air, and uh, so that the holy ones and Buddhas from all directions you know, can uh, take them wherever they need to go. So. Oh, Dr. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.